ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Well, hello. You're listening to another edition of Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing pretty good. Uh, it's it's SummerSlam Day. It's SummerSlam Day. So, of course, we're not going to talk about SummerSlam at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, so, well, well, this is a rather impromptu uh show by our standards chad uh care to tell everyone what we're gathered here to talk about yeah we'll uh we'll just go through some full disclosure we've uh we were in the process of doing an awa show but uh had to cancel that for maybe a reason so we we wanted to get out some content so we didn't take another month-long sabbatical last weekend was uh my birthday and i was out of town so it's kind of been a couple of weeks since we've given anything so one thing that we thought about was the recently released documentary called jim crockett promotions the good old days and uh parv you did a review uh did kind of a written form review on pro wrestling only and i guess you watched that a couple of days ago yeah and uh i finished watching the documentary literally about five minutes ago so uh <laughs> Well, we just decided to kind of discuss that uh, in a little detail since we have went through, uh, you know, from the final conflict forward, we went through with all the major super cards on Jim Crockett promotions. And now we're into full bore WCW time frame. Yeah. So we really uh, have. Uh, I mean, once Crockett Jr. took over, we have uh, I guess we have. Kind of when most people think about the NWA or Jim Crockett promotions, unless you were located in the Carolinas and grew up in the 70s, we have covered, you know, most of the 80s time frame in these shows. Yeah, and we've also been every week looking at the Meltzers, looking at the Wrestling Observer newsletters, and uh, right. I think we've definitely, you know, had a good look at the business side of it from uh, the kind of, uh, you know the smart perspective as it were in the right. in the technical sense of the term uh um yeah so i was really interested to watch this documentary and uh, i'm very interested to talk to you about it chad because i have no idea what you uh what you make of it yeah given that you've just watched it <laughs> um yeah. so i do want to go about this i mean i i could uh we should we talk about the early portion because i'd say there are probably like three different parts of this documentary there's like an early bit where they talk about Crockett Senior. Um, there's a bit where they talk about um, kind of there's a kind of transitional portion, I guess, and where right. they talk about the kind of peak years of Crockett in uh, the mid 80s. And then there's a long portion where they discuss the uh, the decline and the reasons for the decline. So what do you make of the first part? Well, uh, we'll, 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 before we begin, we'll just give a little uh, background, I oh, guess. Yeah. Let's the, do, uh, let's yeah, do the, that. the documentary is called Jim Crockett Promotions, The Good Old Days. You can get it from uh, highspots.com. Uh, 
They sell it as a, a three disc set for thirty bucks. I mean, I mean, before we get in, I would probably, if I had to grade the documentary, uh, I'd probably give the documentary, I guess, like a B plus. Um, it 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 get a recommendation for me. I think if you're interested at all in Jim Crockett Promotions '80s NWA, you definitely need to give it a look. I think if you're not familiar with that, uh, you'll learn a decent amount. So that'd just be kind of my overall, I guess, grading on the documentary. Yeah, and uh, in fact, there's two things I'd say that you should do before listening to the rest of this uh, show that we're about to do, Chad. One is watch the documentary, because uh, I don't think you and I are going to um, worry about, like, uh, spoiler content, right? This should be no. like a review for someone who's watched it, I would say. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. We will talk in detail about what each of the... Uh, interview talking heads on the documentary what they say what their opinions and theories were so yeah this is kind of like a companion piece yeah and the other thing i'd say is um our uh buddy uh dylan hales and uh dave musgrave um they have the wrestling culture podcast where they interviewed the director of this so right that would be the show to listen to before you watch the documentary this one will be the show to listen to after it yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, th- that's uh, Michael Elliott. And uh, and they did a Kickstarter campaign uh, to make this documentary. The pledge goal was $15,000. I'm looking at it right now. They ended up with $16,410 to uh, make the documentary. So, I mean, again, for... for I, uh, one of my best friends, he does uh, video and production work for a, a pretty big company here in the southeast. That he's their production manager. Yeah. So I, I definitely know how much video and production costs and stuff like that can, uh, can rack up. So I do think for the $15,000 goal they had, they, uh, they did a good job in creating this documentary with that amount of funding. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they did it without paying any of the guys who appear, or, or did they? If I, didn't he say they had to pay some of the guys? To, yeah, to, I'm to, not sure because in the uh, in the interview with the wrestling culture guys, he was talking about the reason that they used the high spots flare footage. Yeah, and uh, he was talking about how flare has kind of a quoted rate of I can't remember, but it was like. Uh, it, it was a big amount just to, for him, I guess, like a personal appearance rate or whatever. So uh, that's why they decided to use the high spots shoot interview footage for him. Yeah, and I have to say, given what I've, anything I've seen of Ric Flair in the past like three or four months, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I know yeah. I'd, we, we all love him, but he he's uh, clearly in a weird place in his life right now because right. he, he's been a mess every time I've seen him. He was a mess on Wife Swap. There was that thing that was posted last night. What was that thing last night? The uh, 224, was it 2K14 panel that he was on with JR and uh, Austin and stuff? <laughs> I haven't seen that. I've only watched like a minute of it, but he's like clearly drunk and a mess and it's, it's, it's oh, embarrassing. Okay. But the, the main thing is that they're meant to be talking about great WrestleMania moments. And mm-hmm. uh, Flair's just putting over great moments from his life and just telling like oh, road man. stories and things. So, yeah. Um, but there was also there there was a recent RF shoot as well, where he would only talk about like past couple of years, and that was re- reputedly like woeful as well. So, but he he requires fifteen grand for an appearance, right? Yeah, there you go, fifteen grand. So that that's uh, 
if if he'd have charged that, that was the whole Kickstarter funding budget right there. So yeah, I know the other thing that we should say before we go into this. I mean, this is one of those things that gets like so. You gave it a grading, uh, Chad, right? Um, yeah, I, 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 I think about B plus. I, I would say you know it's getting like an automatic B just for existing. Do you right. know what I mean? Like the fact that this documentary exists gives it a big plus point you know for us as for us as wrestling fans you know that the fact that there is an independent crockett doc um you know is automatically <laughs> boosting that rating would you agree with that like if there were 10 crockett documentaries out there you, you probably wouldn't go that high with a rating <laughs> would you do you think that's fair um i i mean i don't know i thought i thought he did a fairly good i mean there's a couple of criticisms that i'll have of the documentary that would get through but uh I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and just the fact that this exists, it's uh, it's good. But uh, but I do think with the funding limitations and the footage limitations and all that stuff that was done, I do think for them to condense, I guess, 50 years of history into two hours, I think yeah. they did about as good a job as possible. I do think there's areas of improvement, of course, but... Yeah. Uh, Overall, oh, I thought they did oh, a good job. All right, well, I, I'll put it a different way, okay? You can see a parallel here with another documentary that came out pretty recently, the uh, the ECW uh, documentary. You know, the one that, uh, what was it called? Yeah, again? that one's called uh, Barbed Wire City. So, now, I have I've not seen I, that I haven't one. seen Barbed Wire City 2, but I did track quite a lot of the pre- you know, the the preamble to it coming out. Right. And there were a lot of guys knocking it before it even come out because there was already plenty of ECW documentaries out there. So it was already getting judged at a higher standard than, you know, because this is the only Crockett doc. Do, do, do you see what I mean? It's kind yeah, of I like... Yeah, I understand that. It, I mean, you get this in academia, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Shakespeare scholar. Um, there's been thousands of books written on Shakespeare. So you, every any book you write has to be like you know original in some way. If there's some right. obscure writer that nobody's ever written on, it's kind of a free pass, you know, because you're going into uncharted, fresh territory. That that was the only thing I was trying to say. Um, but you're right; it does uh, cover the ground as about as well as it could uh, in a two-hour time frame. Um, so d- why don't we get into it then, Ch- Chad, with okay. the uh, Crockett Senior stuff? What did you uh, make of this early portion and? Was it? Was there any stuff that you uh, was in there that you didn't know already? Um, not not as far as the actual stuff just on Jim Crockett Senior himself. I mean, I knew he had dabbled in the, the boxing aspects too, and then also the wrestling. So he was kind of more, I guess, of an entertainment promoter overall than a wrestling promoter. Yeah. Um, and then and then I. I mean, I think um, that area is very fascinating to me, I guess, from the 50s, right from when wrestling on television started existing until, uh, honestly, kind of the national expansion. I think there's just so much kind of stuff within that that you learn because it's, uh, I mean, besides like your, your main superstars, like a Luthez or a Buddy Rogers or even yeah. Gorgeous George, those types of 
individuals. You just don't, I mean, I just personally don't know a lot about a lot of the principles that were drawing these huge shows, and that's kind of something that gets lost in time. I mean, you there's certainly documented evidence that you have people in those times, like a, somebody we may talk about in a minute, like a Johnny Weaver. Yeah. I mean, over his career, he's drew, drawn as much as somebody like Shawn Michaels, but yeah, to a even pretty hardcore wrestling fan in the past 20 years, Johnny Weaver's kind of a blank slate. And even for somebody like me that's done a little bit more digging, he's still uh, a very, I guess, vague kind of person and idea. So we did get a little of that, which I enjoyed yeah. uh, just from Jim Crockett. And you did get a sense to see kind of how big he was and everybody seemed to respect him. So I thought that was kind of, for a five-minute segment of introduction was uh, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot, like, nobody really had much substantial to say about Crockett Senior other than that he was, like, a big man. <laughs> uh, right. What else came across? That he was, like, he uh, did business out of the fly of his pocket. <laughs> came across mm-hmm. pretty big. Um, and, uh, yeah, that they were kind of general. They, they didn't just do wrestling. They did boxing. They did, like, rock and roll shows. It, they were like general promoter entertainment guys, but it was wrestling that was the thing that kind of hit a spark or something, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think eventually wrestling was kind of his main driver, but he did dabble in a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, I, the, the other thing um, it, uh, from that kind of early portion of the show was um, just how big tag wrestling was in that area. I mean, I'd always known that... Um, you know, uh, Mid-Atlantic was a t- kind of seen as a tag territory back in the day. Um, but I think the real extent of that comes across on this documentary. Yeah, that was probably my favorite uh, aspect of, I guess, about the first 30 or 45 minutes of it was they didn't um, really sweep over the tag team wrestling aspect. They made it clearly known that the... Uh, tag team matches in the Carolinas and for most of the Jim Crockett promotion shows those would have been your main event uh, unless they had the NWA champion in because I I think that's what's really fascinating is the NWA champion was all over uh, at this time so he he may be coming in but week in week out they really depended on these tag teams your George Becker and Johnny Weaver yeah. Uh, your Infernos, uh, Rip Hawk, Sweet Hanson, and then the Assassins. Those are kind of your core individuals that they really, and then also the Andersons. We can't forget about them later yeah. on. Those are kind of your core uh, individuals that they really depended on to carry them on a week in, week out basis. And I think tag team wrestling overall in the past year, just with the. Uh, with the stuff I've watched, I've really gained a, a greater appreciation of. I think a couple of years ago, I was a little, I guess, maybe burnt out on tag team wrestling, and I watched a lot of modern stuff, which, uh, you know, WWE, the way they respect tag team wrestling now, is maybe uh, mid-card at best. So uh, I kind of developed that mindset, but just in us watching, uh, e- even in some of the pay-per-views we've watched tag team wrestling seems to have a uh, you know you still see some remnants of when it was the main main event type level stuff and then also in the AWA that I watched of course tag team wrestling was huge there 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Crockett carries on. Like, we can talk about George Scott in a second, but um, it does carry on, like, into the 80s, being quite a strong tag promotion. I mean, it's not the main focus, but they've still always got a pretty strong tag division all the way through. Right. Um, the, the other interesting thing I thought about that uh, little section on the on the tag uh, wrestling is how um, they had this kind of formula of having a um, an older established guy mm-hmm. with a young with a young fresh faced uh, newcomer. So like the who is it? Uh, Becker and Weaver. You, I mean Weaver when he uh, debuted was like a young handsome baby face. Becker was the older guy, right? Right. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that to me is uh, pretty interesting because um, I mean I mean Weaver was uh, we Johnny Weaver was born in 1935, so <laughs> right. I mean even even in the uh, even in kind of the the 70s he'd have been in his 40s, but in the 60s he's I guess been the up and coming guy when he was teaming with Becker. Uh, at first, but I was trying to think of kind of a modern example for that, and that really does feel like something that's it, went by the wayside. There's literally only one I can think of, Flair and Batista, in like real modern wrestling. Right, yeah, that's a good call. I didn't even think about that, but uh, yeah, I can't think of anything besides that where that was really like a... Uh, I mean, because I, I even would consider, like, trip. I mean, Evolution as a stable, I guess, kind of gets the closest to that hierarchy. But even, like, Randy Orton teaming with Triple H, if he would, I wouldn't consider that. Um, and they weren't established as a tag team that much anyway. Um, I think Ivan and Nikita have a bit of that dynamic when we, that yeah. we've seen. Yeah, um, yep. there's not really There's not many, I, I guess, uh, Steamboat and Douglas, when, we, when those guys... Like Steamboat's clearly the senior partner there. Um, yeah. In was that ninety three four sort of time? Uh, ninety two, late ninety two, yeah, late, late ninety two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't consider Oli and Arn kind of having that dynamic to me. I mean, Oli is definitely like the veteran, but yeah. I would say even beyond that, they mostly kind of made it where Oli was the bruiser and Arn was the technician. I guess more than yeah. Uh, the, 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 the only other uh, one that comes to mind um, is oh, my, my mind's gone blank now. I, I, I had it and now I've lost it again. It was um, man. Uh, oh, maybe maybe I'll come maybe I'll come back to me, uh, Chad. I've um, I'm drawing a blank on it. I, uh, oh yeah, sorry. In that W uh, in the early. Um, in this kind of 1979 WWF stuff I've been watching, right. it seemed like Tony Guerrero was a guy who was often like tag with a younger guy, especially like okay. toward, like he was like a staple of their tag division. Um, so they'd like stick like Guerrero with Larry Zbyszko when Zbyszko was young, or with like Rick Martel, say, where Guerrero was clearly like a good 10, 15 years older. But I don't know if they had that dynamic of mentor uh, student. There's, a, I guess there's, the, uh, there's another no. one in Mid-South too, sorry to harp on about this, but uh, I think Mr. Wrestling 2 has a tag team where he's clearly the mentor, and uh, I'm trying to remember who the student was. Was it Matt Bourne? Yeah, he, well, they did team a little bit before Bourne went to the Rat Pack. And then Bourne turned on his mentor type thing to mm-hmm. join the Rat Pack. Sorry. 
Well, in, in most of those cases, I mean, certainly in Douglas and Steamboat, even though Steamboat was the mentor, I mean, it really, the way they presented it, and I mean, history kind of shows that that was legitimate, was that Weaver teaming with Becker in these main events really made Weaver a, uh, a made man, I guess you could say, because he kind of plateaued that into you know, main events throughout the 70s. Uh, They were teaming together in the mid-60s. And, I mean, like in the example, I mean, I guess Flair Batista is kind of like that. I don't know if you'd necessarily say Batista was a made man. And, of course, it's on a smaller scope because Batista certainly doesn't have the consistency of a uh, Johnny Weaver or the longevity. But uh, that may be your closest modern example uh, where somebody... I guess, sort of had a 20-year career almost after the fact based on teaming with this established guy. But George Becker is a guy I'd like to learn a little bit more about. I mean, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, I know, yeah. He seems like somebody that's really kind of lost in annals. And, I mean, they were talking about how he was a big name. I mean, I knew, like, uh, you know, of course, of Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson and even Johnny Weaver just – from our shows and what Dylan talks about. I mean, I find that fascinating that Dylan has talked about in Charleston that, like, the most, even to this day, one of the most well-known, like, if you ask for a wrestler, they'll say Johnny Weaver, which just in the short glimpse that we've got of him as an interviewer or the first couple of shows that he wrestled in seems insane, but uh, but really shows kind of the mark he left. Hey, hey, Chad, did you uh, in any way feel, because we kind of <laughs> made fun of uh, Weaver a little bit in those early shows, did you feel any guilt? <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say guilt, I guess it's just, uh, I, I mean, I don't really know how to explain it, but I, I, just, I did not realize how big of a, uh, I guess, of a star he was at one time. Because yeah. even when he comes back, you know, I know we've made mention where he'll come back and they sort of parade him out there and really try to make him seem like a legend, uh, sort of in the same scale like Bruno San Martino in the WWF would happen. And yeah. and you just didn't get a sense of that based on his look and his reaction or whatever. But, I mean, yeah. the markets and the, uh, the drawing show that, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, he was part of a tag team, so there was generally three other like individuals that you could say were contributing uh, because all four, you know, components of the tag team match usually uh, contributed to the draw of the card. But he was one of those main components, so it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the other tag team I think they mentioned with the, the Scott brothers, George and Sandy Scott, uh, right. I think more in the '60s. But that, that, those were that's another guy who um, they wheeled out from time to time, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Sandy Scott, like he uh, he they tended to wheel him out in certain shows that we saw as well. Um, but I, I I I mean I I guess the time you know we're talking about like twenty years there, so it's not terribly surprising that like you, do you ever see it on Raw sometimes where where an old star comes out and the fans are like who's this guy and it's like Doink or something and they don't give like a big reaction. I've seen that I happen. Do- yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago, I remember they uh, they kind of rolled out Chief J. Strombo, and <laughs> right. everybody had sort of like a, uh, a reaction, and right, then that so. was it. Now you can understand how it how it happened. Um, so what what happened after this in the in the documentary after the folk? 
because there's a bit where um, uh, Crockett Senior dies, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and this was a really interesting thing for me, is that uh, he didn't give the promotion straight away to uh, Crockett Junior. Right. He left it to this guy called uh, John Ringley. This was complete right. news to me. I'd, I'd never hear this before. Uh, yeah, now he was married to Francis, uh, Jim Sr.'s daughter, uh, brother, uh, sister of Jim Crockett Jr., David, and Jackie. And, uh, yeah, they really, it, it's something I, I knew about, but it kind of never done any research or it hadn't really registered. So the documentary, again, I think did a good job showing how that line of succession went and that, you know, none of the brothers seemed exactly resentful that Ringley was going to be the uh, the head of the company. I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels, I guess, like Triple H in some regards will be running WWE at some point yeah. in the future. Uh, it kind of feels like that type of situation where Ringley was the kind of the uh, wrestling mind of the uh, direct. But, but they said he was like good at the entertainment stuff, like the non-wrestling promotion as well, right? That he was, yeah. like, the most experienced promoter out of them by a mile. Right, and he worked at... Did they say he worked at a television? He was a... Or... Yeah, like, he, he he was, like, a maybe, like, a even, like, a lo- local uh, magnate or celebrity of some sort, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he was definitely, like, involved with the media of the, you know, Carolina scene of that period. So that would have, it would have been more interesting to me. Like, I kind of wonder, like, at the time when uh, Jim Sr. died, what was Junior's involvement in the company uh, and David yeah. and Jackie? Because, I mean, Jim Sr., when he died, he was not a, uh, I mean, he was not a young man. He was in his 60s i think he was born in like 1909 i mean david crockett was born in 1946 so jim senior died 1973 so i mean david would have been uh what about 20 27 years old jim jr would have been you know 28 29 so these were not it, it, it wasn't a situation where you had kids that would have been running the company you know it's like what yeah. were they doing at this time uh, behind the scenes, were they involved? That was something that was not clear and would have been interesting to see. Yeah, and one of the things we should say, uh, Chad, is that the great achievement of uh, of Mike Elliott here is uh, is getting the three Crockets, Jim, David, and Jackie, on camera. I mean, yes. nobody has ever; these guys have never done any shoot interviews. Is that right? Uh, no shoot interviews. I know Jim Jr. did uh, did some stuff for one of the uh, WWE documentaries, but yeah, d- that- David did too. He, they were both on the right. But I haven't seen that. I, I know it's the it's the actual um, was it the the fall and right the rise and fall of WCW documentary. Yes, yes. That so one. that's kind of um, that's you know that's sort of. Glossed up. I mean, it's very brief. It's not as far as a long form interview. Uh, this is probably the most footage we've heard of Jim Jr. talking about wrestling since uh, you know 1988. So he'd been yeah. 
he he he's pretty much he is one of those guys that when he sold it to Turner, uh, besides the time when he came back in in like ninety three to ninety five when he was working with Turner, uh, really since nineteen ninety five he sort of unplugged and uh, wrestling's fell by the wayside for him for Jim Junior. Yeah, you don't get that impression with David though, do you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, given like what we know of him as uh, like David Crockett, the commentator, like right. that's pretty much him, right? I mean, there's no that I don't think there's a very big uh, line between David Crockett, the man, and David Crockett, the commentator. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm pretty sure that he he had it in his heart, a big time. You know? Um, yeah, yeah. Now Jackie Crockett, he was a cameraman for WCW right up to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was quite up to them, but I do know for sure it was a long time. He was always one of the kind of uh, cameraman production guys. So he, it's it's really interesting that you have sort of the three plights of the brothers where, uh, you know, J- Jim Jr., after he leaves, he's pretty much completely disconnected from wrestling. Uh, Jackie's sort of, I guess, the loyal worker, soldier, you know, kind of the blue collar, I guess, of the of the three working to the end. Uh, and then David, who I think certainly has a passion and still in some ways does have a passion. And I, yeah. I, I would say maybe, I guess, heartbroken, I guess, over... I, I guess I just got the feeling from the interview snippets we saw here that... If if Jim Crockett Promotions was still in business today, David would want to be an involved member, oh, and, absolutely, and would still you know have a passion to work for them and be one of the main principals of that company. Oh, w- 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 without doubt, that is uh, that is the impression I got that um, Crockett Junior is completely done, and um, you know he wasn't like he's completely like. He's not guarded. He's very candid. Doesn't um, put any punches. Tells it like it is. Uh, whereas David Crockett did seem like he has an axe to grind with a few people yeah. still. He's still got some resentment there, definitely. Yeah, David seemed more bitter in the uh, documentary. Um, so where were we here? Oh yeah, John Ringley. Um, mm-hmm. So the the, the real uh, big thing that happens here is that. Uh, Ringley ends up uh, cheating on Francis Crockett, who isn't interviewed for, uh, <laughs> for some reason. Um, he, he did, uh, Mike Elliott did explain, didn't he, that, that the brothers specifically didn't want her interviewed for some reason. Right. Um, but uh, so that was it for him. That's, uh, you know, that's a kind of, uh, you know, Triple H cheats on Stephanie in real life deal right <laughs> yeah i did some research on that and on like the wrestling classics forum uh with that they they said there's like speculation that was like with miss tennessee or former <laughs> miss tennessee beauty pageant that's who he ended up uh, cheating with so i don't i don't know if it was worth it or not but that's what happened and yeah, 19- then wrinkly was gone 1973 pet of the year yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, the big thing that happens is that George Scott comes in, um, and basically transforms the promotion. Um, the, and I, I guess I hadn't appreciated quite the extent to which he'd done that before, because he basically turned it from 
being a very tag-heavy promotion to a more kind of single-star-driven promotion. That was kind of the story they gave here, right? Yeah, it, it, you sort of got... This, I would say, probably is the weakest time frame uh, of the documentary for me from the uh, from once Crockett uh, gets the reins of the company to the national expansion and I guess the horseman era. I think there's a lot of, I guess, rushing or not much focus, but we do get some stuff like, Oh, steamboat. He was a good talent and he came in. Uh, you get, I guess a, a, a brief kind of before that you get a little brief introduction on Johnny Valentine yeah, uh, in in which it seems like Gorilla Monsoon may be talking about Johnny instead of Greg in the twenty minutes to warm up because we heard that same line. Yeah, I can't I can't remember who said it, but they were talking about Johnny, which I uh, uh, par, par I uh, I've never watched a Johnny Valentine match until a couple of nights ago, and on that YouTube account uh, that's showing all the seventies Japan footage, there's yeah. a twenty four minute Johnny Valentine tag. I think it's from 1973. Right. Uh, it, it was good. And you can definitely see that Johnny Valentine, he's a, he's a bruising, rugged, rough uh, type guy in the match. So I, I wish now, more footage exists. Now, I've seen quite a, a little bit. I, still, I wouldn't say a huge amount, but I've seen a good bit of um, Johnny uh, Valentine on the Cornette garbage tapes that were yeah. uploaded. Um, now th- th- that stuff is random as hell. Like you know, it, it, some of it won't have commentary. It's it's kind of like a real uh, pick and mix, I guess, of different stuff. You know, the footage might be warped, or you might get like four minutes of match here, or the end, or the finish, or you know, it's all a mess. Um, but I got, I think it was like Paul Jones versus Valentine. Um, and my immediate note, and I, I think I even asked it on the board at the time, was like, wow it's like greg it's like greg you know was a reincarnation of yeah. his, his father like he works in a very similar way to his to his uh to his dad so um that was my note and the, the other thing is that um though it seemed crazy over with the uh you know big reactions from the crowd obviously he was a heel right um right but uh even even in the clip, uh, in the documentary, they show a clip of, a, of introductions of Wahoo versus Johnny Valentine. Yeah. And, you know, Johnny Valentine, uh, it's, it's about a five-second clip, but you can tell he's wearing that kind of red and black robe, the same one that Greg wore. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, looks almost exactly like him. Like, you couldn't really tell him apart in just the three-second clip we get. No, I thought he was given quite a lot of credit for being kind of the man along with George Scott who changed it to being more singlesy promotion he was the kind of featured star there wasn't he I mean uh, the, the, I guess Wahoo would be the other guy yeah it seems like those two uh, based on the documentary were shown as I guess the main catalyst of the 70s uh, and then, I mean, one one thing too that we can discuss is you. I don't know if we had one mention of Harley Race in the whole documentary. No, there was. But, I didn't recall any. In not, in fact, I don't recall any mention of uh, the NWA champ in the whole documentary. Right. So um, that I don't know if that was a strategic because I mean, obviously, you may want to separate those two because I think most people. Uh, 
if you're not that informed with things like the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions were one and the same, uh, you know, if you yeah. haven't done a ton of research, so I can understand that, but it didn't see odd. It did seem odd that, you know, race was in there, not regularly, but on a decent amount of time and was on top uh, when he was in as the NWA champion. Yeah, and Briscoe, I mean, they, Jack. They didn't mention Dory. They didn't mention Terry. They didn't mention Jack. And they didn't mention Flair as world champ. Um, right. And I wonder if that's because Mike Elliott has got the National Wrestling Alliance title. Uh, he's got like a history of the NWA title documentary out there. And I wonder if in his own mind he thought that he didn't want to cross those two things. Um, that's, that's possible. I've, I've not seen that. So. I haven't seen it too, but I, I might uh, I might give it a watch because on, um, <laughs> on High Spots you can get that as a download for like $10 or something. Okay. Which that's pretty, you know, that's pretty cheap. Uh, yeah. You know, they were charging me like um, $60 uh, shipping <laughs> on high yeah. spots. So um, if you're a UK wrestling fan, you have to go through uh, their eBay site. Little uh, tip for you there. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I, there was a couple of things uh, about this George Scott period that um, stood out. There was the stuff with... Uh, there was like a. It seemed like there was a massive feud between the Andersons and uh, was it Wahoo uh, that they featured? Yeah, you had the uh, the feud with Wahoo, and uh, they 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 sort of did a. I mean, it seemed like to me the most pertinent feud was uh, was Wahoo and Valentine, but then they also kind of lumped in the Andersons uh, along with that, sort of as the tail end. They talked about how uh, Lars was phased out and Gene came in to team with Oli. And we can just say, too, right now that Oli, he's interviewed in this. <laughs> and, I, I, I mean, I didn't think he came off as, like, as, I guess, crotchety or bitter as you might expect, but he, he looks really rough. Um, yeah, he I'm, looks actually, so I'm actually going to give an age check on Oli because he looked awful in his face, pale. and. Uh, I, I, I was wondering if he's got, like, some skin condition, like, psoriasis or something like it because it is uh his forehead and stuff just like it's not like abdullah the butcher uh, you know like uh you know king curtis ikea style forehead it's not one of those like blade job foreheads it's just right. like some horrible <laughs> i can't even describe it it's like yeah. something i mean yeah it looks bad and he's only 70 years old i mean uh, that's old but he looked to me older than that no, I, I uh, did you um, happen to listen to that? Uh, it, I think I posted it somewhere. There's a there's a link on uh, YouTube of uh, Ole talking to Dave Meltzer, where he is super pissed off at Meltzer. Um, so compared to that, uh, Ole was pretty on, like on good behavior here. Yeah, yeah. This still, is about as good as you can expect. He, he's from still all. like even when he's being nice, there's an undertone of like bitterness and darkness and like he's just not a very nice guy is he no no yeah. <laughs> uh, but i quite like that you know and I, I uh it was also around this time where we got a a, a short clip of uh fat flare in yeah. the flower tights and the bandana strutting around so that was interesting in a clip of him versus wahoo uh, so they did, even before they talked about the plane crash, we did get a little inkling that Flair had came in. 
uh, to the promotion. Yeah, the handling of the plane crash, what did you think about that? Because uh, it was kind of... Um, I mean, I, I guess now, like, and we have to mention her at some point, Chad. <laughs> um, there's something about the production. I mean, you said he had a 15 grand budget for this, but um, there's something about the production values and the way that this is edited together that has a uh, amateurish feel. Um, and I, I think the handling of the plane crash uh, is one of the areas where this comes through a little bit, where... Um, you get like a um, you get like a picture of the plane, mm-hmm. and then like the screen goes black and some text comes up, um, and they literally like play over the sound of a plane crashing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's just a little bit kind of. Uh, yeah, on the production side, I would say the the uh, the graphics used were the. Uh, one of the main problems I had, uh, both with the text, I mean, because, yeah, you did get just kind of a text, and then it scrolls up kind of Star Wars style. And then you also, uh, one thing, when they showed Bill Watts and his UWF, like that graphic, I mean, I know, uh, I know for starters, our buddy James can produce a graphic that looks better you know in yeah. print form than that with his uh skills so that that to me was uh one of the things that did look amateurish along with the music i don't know this, this if you want thing, to talk about that this now, is the but. thing i don't get though uh chad just on the graphic front whoever did that front cover is as good as james right yeah, I mean the front cover looks really good. I don't know if that's a high. That's, I would guess that's a high spots thing, though. I mean the cover looks good. I, I don't. I mean, I mean to be honest, and this is not just me kissing. I mean I think James's covers look better. Oh right. But yeah. the, but but I mean the cover definitely looks better than the production. I guess within the graphics within the uh, documentary. Yeah, uh, and yeah the. The other thing is the music, which is a, an almost constant distraction, or at least it was, like, especially in the early part of the... Especially when they're talking about Crockett Senior and stuff. I don't know what that music is in the background. Yeah, at this... Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how frequent documentaries uh, of this kind are over in the UK, part, but here in uh, the US, we have a 30 for 30... Right. Uh, ESPN documentary series, which they've done about forty of them now. Right. Uh, so, so this style kind of the style of this show was very linear. I mean, they went from point A, the beginning of Jim Crockett, to point B, the death, uh, and and the way they used utilized the talking heads and kind of the undertone music and the the uh, fuzziness around the camera frame. Oh, God. Uh, what was yeah, that? Which I, I didn't like that. Um, I'll say that. And the, and the music, I mean, it was relatable to sort of the 30 for 30, but there was definitely points where kind of the undertone keyboard, uh, I mean, I can understand maybe wanting something in the background to feel, but it the, the theme of what was being played just didn't really fit. Yeah. Uh, to me, the only time the music really fit what was being discussed was at the very end, which uh, maybe, uh, you know, yeah. non-coincidentally, I think that's the best part of the documentary. Yeah, no, you, 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 you're right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I do understand, like, I don't want to say, um, I know one of these guys who, who says that, like, um, 
British TV is better than American TV. Although that may be an opinion that I secretly hold. <laughs> um, but uh, An incorrect one, but... <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> it, but when it comes to things like documentary and stuff, like typically we'll see a documentary put out by like BBC or Channel 4, you know, and those guys are, you know, pretty pro. You know, it, it's like... We, I'm just not used to seeing um, like kind of stuff on this level. I don't know I don't know how else to put it, but I find it pretty jarring all the way through. Um mm-hmm. So, but I, I've never seen those uh, 30, 30 shows that you that you mentioned. Uh, it, it, like, it, is this not a million miles away from that? Because I I can't even imagine. No, I mean this is an this is a lot lower budget. But I mean, like the Ken Burns documentaries. Uh, have you ever seen any of those? No, He's no. done one on the Civil War and baseball. Those are very like uh, highly reviewed, highly revered. And uh, I guess the basic concept is the same, uh, but where you have like a bunch of people, it, it's it's called like a talking. Yeah, head, I, I've seen. Have, yeah. So I've seen plenty of talking head documentaries, just not one where they have a bed of really weird like country music under everything. Yeah, yeah. This was <laughs> the most egregious example of that. Um. Yeah, and they had they, it gave everything like a, a rinky dink feel. Uh, like my wife was kind of in the room and she was like what, what are you what are you watching um and uh i said this is of great interest to me <laughs> so there we are um where, where were we here what were we uh ole anderson was the was the last thing i i remember talking about yeah Brad. i mean we talked about a little bit about the plane crash i think everybody yeah i guess knows that and then we also had a little bit about blackjack uh coming in and uh, all all that that happened, where he again was the the uh, the big guy for a while, and then we sort of got into. I know this was one of your complaints, and this was a complaint I had, where we where we get the discussion of Flair and Steamboat and sort of their rise. Yeah. But we it really feels like we go from about uh, 1977 and 78 where Weaver gets phased out, Sweet Hansen and uh, Rip Hawk gets phased out, and yeah. Flair and Steamboat Rise. It feels like we go from there to uh, Final Conflict in a matter of three minutes, so yeah. about a five-year period. Things get really fuzzy around this time in the documentary because... Like it's su- it's suggested that things started to go downhill under George Scott, but mm-hmm. it's not clear when, uh, and it's not also not clear from the documentary when Scott left. I mean, I I happen to know it was 1981, but it's not clear from watching it. It could have been any time, um, and it's also like Dory Funk Jr. is brought in as a as a booker, um, and like he establishes a committee, right? Which they did quite well. They did that bit where they explained the committee quite well. But it's like they didn't really cover any of the stuff about Flair becoming the world champ. Um, how Jim Crockett, like within the NWA. Like I, I know this stuff just from being a wrestling fan, right? That Jim Crockett Jr. and this promotion became more important within the NWA during this period, right? And then Flair became the champ. And then uh, Crockett had some control over the booking of the world champion isn't this all um but none of this stuff is explained or gone into in any detail at all uh which makes things a little bit confusing especially i guess for someone who doesn't know any of those any of this stuff right 
Yeah, you get that. Uh, the basically the whole Dory booking uh, era, and then uh, also kind of phasing that into the the uh, Oli era where he was handling both uh, yeah. both Crockett and Georgia at the same time. You get some kind of uh, talking about how they sort of segued from Jim Crockett Promotions to Mid Atlantic, but. This, I mean, again, they were trying to cover 50 years, but it's it's almost, it almost feels like they could have just canned everything and had maybe like a 10-minute segment on Flair, uh, and that sort of said like when he came on board and just went from there to the Starcade because it felt like they were bouncing off a few ideas and... Yeah. If you don't have, you, you you really didn't get a sense of, wait a minute, so well, he's in Georgia, but he's also in Crockett, and we know he's busy, but kind of, you know, why was that not enough for him to handle, and uh, it really felt scatterbrained. The, the, this bit of, this bit, this little section here from the early 80s was a, was a bit of a mess, although it did answer one of the questions that we had, which was... Uh, was the Dusty booking Starcade 83 because right. it seemed like he came in just to book that one show even though Dory was the booker Dusty it seemed like Dusty booked that one show is that right that was, that was the impression I got from the it was they again. said that, I mean the way they said it was kind of a little read between the liney uh, where they said like Dusty was not technically the booker at Starcade 83 but he was pretty much calling the shots uh so so we got that and uh one thing i also wanted to ask you was uh your friend bob cottle was not interviewed which i was surprised by that he was uh, there was no announcers besides uh david crockett that were interviewed not only was he not interviewed uh chad he wasn't mentioned <laughs> there was yeah they picture. showed one picture they showed but, a picture of him yeah. But they, he, not a single mention of uh, Coddle, which is a bit harsh, given that he was like the kind of anchor of that mid-Atlantic uh, show that went on to be um, uh, worldwide, I guess. Yeah, uh, I mean, it seems weird that we had plenty of Tommy Young and, you know, not one thing of Coddle. And I know <laughs> Coddle, I mean, I, you know, I know Coddle does go to like the NWA legends and, um, I mean, I've heard him speak on camera about his memories so he's not somebody like an ollie that you may have to pull his leg so i don't know uh kind of why coddle wasn't included do, do you know i was uh, tremendously entertained by uh tommy young's uh, contributions just because <laughs> he he kind of has the vibe of like a kind of like a jewish grandmother or something do you know what i mean <laughs> like the way that he uses his mouth and stuff he's quite i don't know i do you, you just tickle me in the way Definitely, uh, well, the couch that he was sitting on for his interview, plus his shirt, uh, <laughs> made me think that he was somewhere in Florida. Like, it looked very much Florida-esque. Yeah, like hanging out with Jerry Seinfeld's parents. Was yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I got the vibe of. I got a distinct Jack Klompas vibe from uh, Tommy <laughs> Young. Uh, um, so... Uh, yeah, where, where, so this bit was uh, I'd like more detail on, and I will watch the uh, NWA documentary at some point, which may fill in some of these gaps. But it did, it didn't answer the crucial question that I've got, which is, to what extent is Flair somebody who you can point to for um, 
to what extent can you credit Flair with helping to nationalize the company? Right. Uh, because that is like, and specifically like the Flair, like how important is that first title run of his, you know, the 81 run? Because it's, yeah, ne- it's it, never really talked about in the, from what I can see. And he was like a proper traveling champ at that time. But it's like one of those things that I have I have no idea. But it's, it's something I recall talking with uh, some of our friends about before. Yeah, you don't get a sense of kind of, I guess, when Flair became the guy. Like, unequivocally the guy. Was it the 81 title reign? Uh, sometime during that reign, was it as late as Starcade 83 when he beat Race? I mean, that's the most kind of, I guess, tangible event. Or was it as early as 78? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean did, uh, I, I wonder if one of the reasons for that, though, is that they didn't have Flair. So they thought, right, we're not going to focus on Flair because we don't have right. him. I don't know. I mean... I don't know. But it, uh, yeah, It could have been a different documentary had they got Flair, I'd have thought. Sure. Anyway, uh, so they did talk about the final conflict in some detail, Chad, which we have yes. done in the past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I thought the, the the final conflict. I thought they did a good job of final conflict conversation in this documentary is interesting because I will say that I didn't detect a ton of BS or glamorizing in the in this documentary as much <laughs> as you might think. Yeah, uh, but the final conflict, while it did have a lot of good analysis, and it has been documented that thousands were turned away, uh, did have Don Connerdle claim that twenty thousand were in the arena and twenty thousand more was outside, <laughs> which was an even bigger tall tale than you know Don has definitely let his weight go from. He he was unrecognizable to me. Yeah, when he didn't they look first. Any, yeah, he doesn't look anything like. The Don Canodal we know. Yeah, when they first showed his face, I didn't know who... Him and Magnum TA. Magnum TA, it's always striking to me that I, I don't think he looks alike. But yeah, so Don claims that 20,000 were turned away, which is uh, pre- pretty comical to think about. But, I mean, it was it was a crucial big show, so it's not to downplay the hat. He, he doesn't I mean, just say it, they turned away 20,000. He says that they launched WrestleMania and Starcade and the pay-per-view era with, uh, with Final Conflict as well. Well, so, I mean, that, says that all of those to things. me is not even as preposterous as the 20,000, because you can clearly see that... Uh, Starcade 83 certainly was the gen- the genesis of Starcade 83 uh, in a lot of ways was originated with the final conflict and the success. Yeah. I, I mean, whether that parlayed WrestleMania and what you get today, I mean, maybe, but that's that's a that's an extreme, you know, kind of stretch to what it became. But yeah, I mean, the fact that 20 I mean, you know, selling out when you're running Greensboro as often as they did, just selling it out. I mean, that's that's a good accomplishment. Having a couple thousand, you know, two to four thousands, what I've heard people turned away. I mean, that that's a big accomplishment. That shows that this show was a huge success because you just don't get that now much for sporting events where... Uh, that many people are kind of blocked out of an event, you know, besides like a Super Bowl or something like that, and you're paying out the nose. Um, so, so here's one of the things so. that interests me, Chad, right? Dory was the booker at that point, 
and everybody says that Final Conflict was super well booked and what like really compelling angle. And from what I've seen of the like pre-build, you know, the road to Greensboro, have you seen that some of that mm-hmm. stuff? Mm-hmm. It's really like well built angle and blow off. Um, I never see Dory get any credit, and he doesn't get any credit for it on this documentary either. And also, the gates were up at this time, and as we're as it as this documentary goes on to say, the gates then dip in eighty in after Starcade in eighty four. Right. So, so like. Does that mean the promotion was doing better under Dory than it was under, like, Dusty? Yeah, I mean, I guess that would have been the transition to the Dusty era. But, uh, yeah, this is, I don't know how, I guess, hands-on Dory was. I mean, I think whoever created that match, and that was one thing that I did enjoy, was Kernertle talking about how this cage match did go 35 minutes, which was rare. Uh, which which is true um, in some yeah. regards. So that I uh, I did enjoy that, and I think uh, if uh, certainly if Dory was the catalyst for booking that match, he needs to get a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Um, although they, I mean they, they did say didn't they that he delegated different areas of the territory to different to like subbookers, right? Yeah, it it, it seems. One thing with the documentary, and I don't really want to misspeak, but there's not a uh, clear indication of really how hands-on Dory was. I don't know if he just controlled, I guess, the main event scene or if he just controlled certain components, but there's not a clear indication of how hands-on he was. Yeah, I I wonder if they asked him, because he's still around too. They could have have asked him uh, to come on for that bit. um, Okay, well... What happened? So that takes us into Starcade '83, um, and we, we we talked a bit about that. But then then they they mentioned the business went down shortly after Starcade. Um, uh, but they, they like this bit is kind of glossed over. Um, do you think they did a good job of explaining Starcade, Chad? Um, I think they did a decent job of explaining uh, how they. Got the idea for Flare of the Gold. Uh, I appreciated that they talked about kind of Dusty's rise, that the way he presents himself and that he has these kind of big ideas is it where you can see how when Dusty's talking about these big ideas and he's able to come up with these names like Starcade, Great American Bash, and it'll be a huge event. Uh, you can see how you would be, I guess, uh, you know, romanticized by what Dusty's saying, uh, because it does sound good on paper, uh, you know, all, all of these thoughts. So I thought they did a pretty good job there with the rise to Dusty's power. Um, but then they did sort of kind of, again, jump forward real quickly to where we went almost immediately to the uh, Black Saturday telecast. Yeah. And uh, well, that wasn't like, uh, obviously we all know about that already, um, well, most of us do. Uh-huh. But they didn't go into super detail on that either. They Not had, a ton, no. They had this one picture of Vince they kept on showing. Yeah, I, I don't know who took that picture of Vince, whether that's like a PWI or what, but yeah, that's the kind of, I've seen that a lot. That's like, that must be like the most like stock picture of Vince that he doesn't <laughs> own because it's him in a, uh, in a ring as an announcer yeah. uh, in his tux. That's kind of like the one standard Vince pick that you always see in these things. So then, um, 
like we go into like the peak year like pretty much they say that 85 86 was the was the peak time mm-hmm. for uh for Crockett um and they use a technique and this is something I said in the written review where you almost have periods of this documentary where there's like like a five minute burst of like 20 guys saying the same thing so you get like you know you get like quick cuts in the talking heads of everybody saying that business was up or that they were selling out around the country like and there's loads and loads of clips of guys saying that and then and it seemed to me that that is how they really covered this um before they went into the horseman yeah yeah you uh you did have a bunch of that where it was sort of like a quick uh basically it was a quick burst of where you know they they paid to get their time slot back they did say they did kind of say that they financed wrestlemania i guess that's an important thing they uh them paying vents for the time slot on Turner uh, was what he financed WrestleMania with, which, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's ever been kind of confirmed or debunked. But, but uh, Meltzer definitely says that as well. In the, If I remember reading it out on the on the show at some point, yeah. where um, that, uh, that million dollars, how, like, I think it's probably overplayed a little bit, the ex- like the extent to which Vince was in the hole before WrestleMania, but that million mm-hmm. dollars couldn't have helped, couldn't have hurt. Right, I agree. Um, yeah, th- so clearly David, I mean, David was the one who mentioned it, so clearly he... Uh, but yeah. it's one of those rare things in wrestling where it was truly win-win, is what they said. It's yeah, like the, which they, I, I mean, I can see that. They needed the time slot, and uh, Vince needed the money, so... So then we get the uh, and and the, and during this time they also talk about I guess the expansion. We get people that we hadn't seen so far in the documentary, like uh, Baby Doll, Ricky Morton, uh, Robert Gibson. They start showing up, and then yeah. we uh, sort of segue that into the genesis of the Horsemen. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. There was a. Did you think this, uh, this Horseman bit was necessary? I mean, like, I, I don't know about you, but I. Feel- I feel like Horseman is done to death a little bit. Like I feel like I feel like I've seen a hell of a lot of Horseman stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess the feeling I got with that was it was kind of like if you want somebody to say like, uh, I mean, twenty years from now, if somebody says, "What what is this?" You know, Jim Crockett Promotions, or somebody's getting into wrestling. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of one of those things where if you didn't mention it, people would criticize that and be like, "How can you forget?" You know, how can you talk about Jim Crockett Promotions and not mention the Horsemen? Right. Uh, but but it is a thing where if you, if you know about it and have heard all the principals talk about the genesis of it. Uh, it it did feel kind of old hat, you know, the five minute. I I didn't think I thought they handled it well though because they didn't dwell, you know. I mean, right. it was a, they didn't a, labor it. Yeah, it was a chapter in a documentary, so I thought it was fine the way I, they handled. They it. only actually had like Tully. They had um, clips from Flair and on, um, and like <laughs> Ole Ole's line, <laughs> which he basically said over and over again, was. Um, I did it to make money. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can see like this seething bitterness under it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't a lot like that. 
I think there was a, the impression that I get from, uh, from from Tully there is that he he feels that maybe the it, it didn't really come out. I think some of it was edited out of the of the final film. But um, I got the impression that Tully thinks that the horsemen weren't looked after as well as they could have been. That they were kind of consistent. He used to put over baby faces where they could have done with a bit more protection. I I I also think that Flair in many of his shoot in his big shoot interview um, and some of his other appearances has always said that that they weren't protected enough. Like there's only so many times you can um, pull the trick of losing or and then talking up big the next night. Like you know over a three or four year period, there's only. Like, how many times can you pull the same trick type thing? Right. I mean, I'd, it, did, I'd, it didn't I mean, come out, but it was kind of... Yeah. Uh, it was kind of, like, under the under the surface, you know? Right. And that, to me, seems like more of a just a dominant heel stable kind of trope. I mean, because at one point, all the horsemen had all the belts. Yeah. So it's almost like if they're beating all the top baby faces, you know, what do they want them to do? Where do you go from there? Uh, you'd have to break up or bring in a whole new group of guys. Yeah, and I, well, I guess we've seen in history, and we will see on our show chair, what happens when you get a group of dominant heels who never put anyone over. Right? I mean... Uh, well, um, I mean, that, that's one thing we'll certainly talk about, but I will say, as I'm going through the 97 yearbook currently, I am consistently surprised at how... Uh, how I guess not as dominant the NWO feels as I thought they did. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like in, in retrospect, I don't think they, uh, I mean, in some ways I think the outsiders, especially as a tag team feel too weak, uh, in the really? early point of 1997. Wow. Yeah. That, no, that's a Like I do know that like, like my memory of Hogan is like, he's a really like Memphisy, sneaky, cowardly heel, isn't he? Yeah, uh, but like when push comes to shove, when it comes to the crunch, he didn't put anyone over, apart from like Luger once. Yeah, I mean we haven't seen. Um, I mean that, that we hadn't seen in the first three months like a definitive, uh, you know, Hogan putting someone over in 1997, and it won't happen till Luger or the tag match with Rodman. But uh, but what we have seen a lot of is. I guess the NWO retreating. I, I do think there's a fair uh, give and take there, but uh, we'll certainly have many shows to discuss that, that over. That, that will be it. Well, maybe a better example would be like, I don't know, the main event mafia or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, um, I, I just think in, it, it's kind of one of these things with these big hill stables that maybe in retrospect, you think, man, they really dominated. And then once you go back and watch it week in, week out, you uh, you sort of see that, I mean, they certainly were a main key component, but they weren't necessarily like, uh, like for sure well, what I've seen the first three months of 1997. It's not a case of like the NWO was constantly beating up a giant and Luger and Sting and DDP on every single show, you know. I mean, right. it's not that case, so. Okay. Um, yeah. And, um all right. Well, they didn't like, like you said, they didn't dwell on the horseman. Uh, so right. we, we, maybe we should, we shouldn't either. But um, yeah, they, they did like they had to nod to it. I agree with you. Yeah. But uh, it's like they didn't, they didn't nod to the Flair title, or the Flair World right. title. That's uh, true. But, 
So, you know, you'd expect them to do that too. Um, so what happens now? Like, basically, like, from the way I'd mark the beginning of the last part um, is Ron Garvin's face. That's basically the marker. As soon as Garvin appears on screen, that's where, they, that's where the documentary feels like it kind of kicks into another gear for me. Would you agree with that, Chad? Yeah. Well, right before that, I guess we probably should talk about the Magnum TA section. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about yeah. Because I thought yeah. that was, again, that felt like them sort of going back on an old thing. And we've discussed this, too, about how Magnum, you know, people were saying he'd be the next Hulk Hogan. He would have been the next super huge star. And I mean, we've talked about that. I thought they did an okay job. I still am not convinced. Uh, you know, I think Magnum certainly could have been a main event player. He probably almost assuredly would have been a NWA world champion, but I'm still not, you know, absolutely convinced that he'd have been this, uh, incredibly huge superstar crossover star. Right, and like Dusty was thinking of him being like a movie star, right? It says like, um, like a like a kind of rock effort, you know, or Hulk Hogan. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I, the the one thing I'll say, Chad, is that I definitely think that Magnum TA was a good head and shoulders better than Sting. um, From what we've seen of him, that's my that's my only and like he would have been if he had been stayed with the promotion I think he would have been that much better than Sting as a draw as well that's my that's just my personal take but um, I don't I don't know about the you know people will I don't know about saying that he'd have been like this massive mainstream star over with like the general populace or whatever within within like NWA fans I think he would have drawn better than Sting did when Sting was given his chance on top yeah I can buy that I mean, Magnum's only 54 now, so he, to me, looks older than he is, wow. too. He's only yeah. 54? Yeah, he's born <laughs> wow. in 1959. That's so. really surprising. So he was really young then, right? In yeah, the... I mean, he was 27, I think, when the crash happened. So, wow. yeah, I mean, he certainly was just entering what you would think would be his peak as a athlete, as a wrestler. So. I tell you what, a Magnum Luger feud would have been really cool as well. If that had happened, like yeah, I mean it's sad because even yeah, I mean even if you think about it, he's twenty seven in nineteen eighty six. That put him thirty seven in nineteen ninety six. So he could still Um, be, you know, I mean even in the NWO era, late WCW era, if he'd have stuck uh, around, just 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 think of the matches, Chad, like uh, Magnum Rude. (laughs) Like there would have been so many different things. Battle of the Mustaches. No, it is a real shame. It is a real shame uh, what his career could have been. Um, and he uh, he actually seemed to me that he is probably in the point in his life now where he's over it. He's probably sick of talking about it now, but he seems like he's more or less kind of come to terms with it. Right, yeah. Um, and the other thing we should say, it is amazing that he was back like on the screen and commentating and stuff like in the time that he was. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he certainly... Uh... Him kind of, I guess, remaining a component of the NWA. It's, it's kind of sad because I guess now that's one thing going through the shows we didn't really notice, but it's really happened now is Magnum's pretty much erased from memory. You know what I mean? Like yeah, and I, now in 1990, he's, he's nobody. I think that happens with the uh, 
with the switch uh-huh. in the book in the yeah. booking committee and because um there's a bunch of guys who slipped off the radar like uh david crockett i mean where mm. did he go you yeah. know it um and magnum was one of those casualties i think pretty right. much i guess funk took his spot I think yeah that seems about right yeah um so yeah, so that brings us into this moment where uh, we see Ron Garvin for the first time as a talking mm-hmm. head. Uh, what do you think of Garvin's haircut? Um, <laughs> it's about as I could have expected, but it's essentially the same as when he was... He's got the flat top still. Uh, <laughs> but it's like dark now, right? Yeah, it's like dark brown, so... <laughs> um. And, uh, yeah, he seemed like someone who's uh, also got an axe to grind with somebody. Um, so th- this basically brings us into quite a detailed discussion of why business started going down and why right. the ultimately they ended up having to sell up to Turner. Right. And I think everybody would agree that this is the best bit. In fact, this this half hour of, uh, of the documentary, uh, not only is it like, the best bit of the documentary but it's like the best edited bit it's got the best music in it it's like mm-hmm. technically the best part but i'd also say that this half hour i'd put up there with any wrestling documentary that i've seen it's like a all-time great bit of uh wrestling um discussion <laughs> uh from the documentaries i can remember seeing yeah it's i mean it's really good um and uh, and i liked how they staged it with Kind of Starcade '87 is, I guess, the first uh, the first big cardinal mistake. I thought that was very clever, and in a lot of ways, I never thought about it until I watched it here. But it's kind of amazing how uh, the death of WCW you can really pinpoint to Starcade '97. Yeah, uh, that's true. So you know, ten years before uh, Starcade '87 ended up being the catalyst for. Uh, Crockett's demise, and of course that was a lot shorter time frame because a year afterwards they done sold to uh, to Turner. Yeah. It was right at a year, but uh, but yeah, that that I thought was interesting and in how they used Starcade '87 and them leaving Greensboro and just Garvin as the world champion <laughs> as sort of the uh, jumping off point to get into the uh, decline of the company. Yeah, no, that was done really neatly. Um... And well, I tell you what I've done here, Chad. I've list I've listed the reasons given by different guys here, and uh, maybe we can go through them and maybe okay. discuss some of the guys, like some of the guys who support these positions, because th- this is one of the things that happens with this part, and it's why it makes it so compelling. Is that all of the different people I'd say up until this point, more or less, are on the same page, right? Apart from yeah, maybe yeah. apart from maybe Ole Anderson. <laughs> Um, more or less everybody's on the same page right. and then you get to this bit and suddenly everybody just disagrees on the reasons right. for the decline um, so well, I guess we should go with uh, so the first part uh, is bad planning decisions I've written for example the booking of Starcade 87 in Chicago mm-hmm. um, so one of the things that people talk about is how Moving Starcade out of Greensboro was a massive kick in the balls for the loyal Greensboro fans who even turned out to watch it on a big screen. Uh, whereas in Chicago, basically nobody gave a shit. Right. 
Um, yeah, that that's one that I really wrestle with because to me, by that point, they were a national company or close enough. You know, right. I mean, they just were. And so for them to, I guess, look at a local market like Greensboro, which is a mid-major town, and that may have been their kind of heart and soul town, but that's that's a midtown. I mean, Atlanta is a lot bigger than Greensboro as a town. Yeah. Even now, Charlotte's bigger than Greensboro. So yeah. for them to look at Greensboro and, I guess, plan their big, their biggest show against one crowd in one city. Yeah. Uh, to me, that does seem a little short-sighted. I know Cornette gives the figures of the gate difference. Yeah. Uh, between that, so that that to me is a good argument in the case of Greensboro because you would have more financial, mm. according to his amounts, you would have a more financial success with Greensboro. I mean, I honestly don't know if they just would have went somewhere else why they just didn't pick Atlanta. I mean, to me, that seems like the more, most natural. Or just do the split show again, right? Could done the split show, or if you want to go somewhere else altogether, I would just had it in the Omni. Uh, the Omni had plenty of super shows. Yeah. Uh, Atlanta seemed like a crowd that was pretty receptive to Ron Garvin. <laughs> but, you, you, you know, the, the Omni has, a, I think, a cap of like 15, right? I think yeah, I mean, get... it, it was a small, but I mean, it was as big as the UIC Pavilion where they was at in Chicago. I mean, it's not like they went to the Rosemont Horizon right. uh, in Chicago. I mean, they were in the UIC, so the Omni has more seats than the UIC. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know who said it on the document. I can't remember who said it now. Maybe you can. Um, but, like, somebody said, well, you know, who's ever heard of Greensboro? It needs to be in a big media market yeah. like Chicago that people have heard of. Um, and, the, I mean, the counter is like, well, when you're watching on TV, does it matter? Like, when, when we're watching these old shows, Chad, uh, other than the times where you get that weird Philly crowd, does it matter where the show is coming from? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean certain, certain venues have certain pizzazz, but, I mean, that Greensboro crowd around that time was extremely hot as we've seen yeah uh in the shows you know like our tv shows that we saw that were in north carolina i mean that was still a hot crowd for the promotion so i don't think it had been a hint i mean i'll I'll put it this way i certainly don't think not one person would not order the pay-per-view because it was in greensboro right um so i mean there's a related point here a more general one of over expansion Uh, right which is which is linked into this to booking Starcade in Chicago. It's a part and parcel of the same thing, and this is something I've thought about quite a lot recently. I had that big thread on PWO about um, whether the death of ter- the territories were inevitable, because mm-hmm. I mean this was Greg Garnier's big talking point on his shoot interview that um, if each of the territories hadn't have thought right, we have to expand, we have to go national, we have to try to take Vince on at his own game type thing and instead say Crockett concentrated on their key markets you know let's concentrate on Greensboro concentrate on Atlanta this is Greg Garnier's argument now that Vince couldn't compete with say AWA in their backyard or Crockett in their backyard Um, I, I guess the big counter argument is that well he would have just taken the big stars eventually and run them out um I don't know. I mean, the the, the the point is, is that 
um, WF did have a hard time getting over in markets that weren't traditionally their own. Uh, you know, as you saw with the with the with the Black Saturday even on TV, right? Um, so there's a there's a bit of so that's one thought I had. The other thought I have is like, couldn't they have delayed this in some way? Like, okay, maybe you you run a Starcade in Chicago, but wait until like 1990 or something until you're big enough in Chicago to run the show. So until then, Bangkok, you could, like I I guess Jim Cornette was saying you can bank on the 20,000 people in Greensboro, mm-hmm. like to be there, and they will be there and they'll be hot. So you know, wait a little bit, wait until 1989 until you've grown that audience big enough so that you can book the Rosemont Horizon or whatever. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think even beyond that, you wait until you have a bona fide main event match. I mean, I think that, to me, even beyond... I mean, Starcade is a name, had a little cred, I'd say, by 87. Yeah. And obviously, me and you, we both love Ron Garbin. We love the match and everything like that, but... Yeah. I don't think anybody could have said that Ron Garvin as the champion versus Ric Flair in a cage at that time, uh, you know, that, that doesn't have the type of Hulk versus Andre, which happened nine months before, right. or, or a Sting versus Hogan, or even what could have been like a Flair versus Luger, I would say. Uh, that right. may be where you want to try to expand it. And there's another thing here as well is that Ron Garvin was not over in Chicago, and he was over in Greensboro. Right. Um, you know that game? Like, there's been another thread. I'm sorry, I keep on mentioning threads on the board, but um, there's been that uh, video game thread recently, and I talked about the Total Extreme Wrestling uh, game. Now, I don't know if you ever played that, Chad, but it's no. where I stole my letter ratings from. um but on that you can click on like a wrestler right so you could click on ron garvin say and it's got a breakdown of his popularity by region (laughs) so it'll say like you know in the mid-atlantic area maybe he's like a a b plus for overness okay but like say like in the midwest or in you know new york say he could be on an e you know so you can be like a b plus in one area and an e as well like you know, Jerry Lawler would probably be like, you know, a star in Memphis, but he might be like, you know, more like a D up in Portland or something. So, and I think pretty much Ron Garvin may have had like a B plus up in uh, Greensboro, but it, clearly he maybe was struggling to even scrape a D in Chicago, right? Yeah. I mean, the crowd was hot in Detroit when he won the belt. So I can see from Crockett's point of view them looking at that as but, the litmus but, test i mean but how, how much of that was just a crowd being excited for, title for a title or? change i yeah. think that's what they didn't take into account um and and I, one thing in this documentary is i think garvin was pretty candid i mean he admits that he was not over now i mean he of course yeah. blames the tv that he didn't defend his title yeah. and he didn't get a rematch which i can I can kind of follow along with that, but, but, but Chad, didn't you de- debunk that a couple of? Because I brought that. We, up there is <laughs> there is results of him. I mean, he certainly didn't have. I mean, he just didn't have the time or the lengthiness of the reign where you can see him going around the horn. But there is definitely results on the history of WWE.com in the WCW section where you can see in that two month period where he was on TV and sort of matches. Uh, as the world champion, um, you know, he had a squash match here and there. 
He had, I think, one defense against, uh, or a, at least a feature match against Arn Anderson on TV. Yeah. So, and and he was defending it um, on the house shows. So there, there is that. I mean, I I just think without him saying it, I mean, this was just always going to be a lame duck reign. Yeah, uh, that's just what it was. It was always going to be a two month title reign. Right, but I, I, I just, I mean, I wonder, like, if you'd watched it in Greensboro, let's say you're a dude in Chicago, right, and you watch Starcade on TV, you watch it on pay-per-view, and you see the Greensboro crowd going wild for Ron Garvin, you're going to think, well, he's a bigger star, right? So right, that's going to help yeah. Garvin get over more in a different market. So I, I just think it's a case of, like, a wrong wrong guy, wrong town, wrong time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can go for that. <laughs> um. So, I mean, the, the bad planning decisions have to uh, take a part of the blame, but it's like, I don't think anybody could say, well, Starkid 87 is the reason that they, that they, that they started bombing. I mean, that, that could be a contributing fact, but you can get over one bad gate, surely. I mean, they could yeah. get over, like, how many years have they been in Greensboro? They could get over this. Or, I mean, or is it the case that after this point, people stop going to Greensboro? Well, even... <laughs> I mean, that's even the case of even if they did, I mean, we are talking about one market. I mean, if, if New York City tomorrow decides they don't like the WWE, that may make a little bit of a difference. I mean, it, it may make a material difference, talking in financial terms, mm. but uh, it shouldn't put the company out of business, you know. I mean, that's one market. So the other big thing, again, 1987, that they talk about in some depth is the UWF takeover and how that was handled. Um, so how big of a, like who was pushing this as a, as a reason? I think Jim Cornette basically was amazing during this part because he seemed to be the guy with all the figures and uh, a, a real kind of perspective on it. But um, the, yeah, UWF as a reason for that, that like, did they need to buy it? Do you think? Um, I don't think they did. I think they were sort of suckered into that by Jim Ross, as you are told yeah. in the documentary. I think they saw the UWS uh, syndication reach and thought that was attractive, and so that's why they bought it. I don't. I don't think. I certainly don't think it was more of a talent need. I think it was more of a syndication and expansion need. Uh, but I do think it's the type of thing where if they would have done it like how Vince did with WCW, yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he literally bought it when they had nothing of leverage, mm. and somehow uh, Jim Ross or Bill Watts or whoever was able to convince Crockett that they still had all this worth as a company. Uh, which they just quite frankly didn't. I mean, they, they had attractive time slots and syndication still, but that's something where I think if uh, Crockett would have shown a little patience and waited them out, they'd have got that anyway and not had uh, paid the financial burden to get it. Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, John, uh, John Williams' big talking point is that they didn't even get the ace there. Right, my, my buddy Ted. Yeah, you know, I mean that, they didn't that get is, Ted. That's true. You did not get Ted. Uh, <laughs> Gordy was a big component of UWF. He was gone from there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean they didn't bring over some of these other 
jokers like Savannah Jack and stuff like that. So, I mean, honestly, from all that, you really got the uh, Michael Hayes and Sting and Eddie Gilbert. Yeah. Uh, so, the, so those are your main people and, from I mean, the UWF. Flair, I mean, he's a little conceited, but they, they, they show a clip of Flair from the high spots uh, shoot. Um, and his, his point is basically, what were they buying? They were buying nothing. That's that's his point that they didn't like. They didn't even need that TV slot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, UWF in 1987 is uh, it, it's certainly a promotion on the decline. I don't know what type of ratings they were getting at that point, but I have watched that. I've watched all of the 86, 87 UWF when it switches from mid south. Yeah. And uh, there, you you can definitely see the peak when they do that one show where they change all three titles uh, in the same show, which felt revolutionary. And you had the Russian flag burying angle and all that stuff. But uh, after that, you really feel like the uh, the show's on the decline. Right. No, I know not not just from the gate point of view. From the actual product isn't as good as yeah. It was. From a quality standpoint, yeah. yep. Um. No, I I, uh, I definitely um, agree with that from what I've seen as well. And I, I think, again, I mean, DBRC always says that Watts actually started hot-shotting, you know. So the idea of changing three titles on one show, on the one hand, yes, that feels revolutionary. But on the other hand, you're getting into hot-shotting territory when you start doing shit yeah. like that as well. Yeah, like, you do feel a little sense of desperation when you do a move like that. Um, so, yeah, they, they, so that was a big outlay the UWF takeover and like uh, I've heard Bill White, Bill White's got a, quite a lot of money for that. And he was paid in installments and he kept on getting paid even into the Turner era. Um, I like, I heard that he said he didn't get paid the full amount, but uh, he, he still got quite a bit for it. Yeah. I think he could retire on it. Well, I think he certainly got, I don't, I don't know a dollar amount or whatever, but I would certainly say he got paid more than what the actual company was worth at that time. So he made a very savvy uh, investment to sell when he did. So other reasons that people give now, right? There's another one, a big one. Bad booking by Dusty. There, yeah. if, there are two Dusty talking points. This is the first one, the bad booking. So I guess we can look again at Starcade 87. Um, and think about the Road Warriors not going over on that show. Right. Um, Bunkhouse Stampede up in New York that they mentioned. Dusty going over in a, in front of 5,000 people in New York. Nobody yeah. gave a shit. Right, at the Nassau. Yeah. Uh, well, basically all of 1988 that we've seen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's certainly didn't help that you had a company that uh, I think by 1988 you can see Dusty's ideas and freshness are just they're hashed out yeah uh, they'd been recycled they uh, some a, a new jolt of adrenaline needed to be inserted into the company from a booking standpoint it yeah. it really feels like everything I mean when probably your most uh adventurous booking idea is Sting going 45 minutes with Flair and a draw and Ron Garvin turning heel and running away with a cash with a briefcase full of cash. That's probably the two most, uh, 
advantageous <laughs> or uh, revolutionary booking things. I mean, because even like Luger being elevated, that's good, but they never pulled the trigger. So, I mean, how is that even different from like Barry Wendell in 1987? No, I mean, you know. The, the big talking point here for me, Chad, that nobody really, well, I haven't seen it discussed enough, and we didn't really talk about it enough on our shows, Chad, um, given how much I absolutely hate the guy uh, <laughs> shortly after this point, is that um, they made a big deal of the fact that they had to, in desperation, switch from Magnum TA after the injury to Nikita. Nikita, yeah. Right? Now, I think that Dusty absolutely buried Nikita in the booking. Like, you know, he was over, over, over like Rover, as they say, uh, in the first part of that face, to, like when he just turned face. And, like, within, like, six months, he's, like, TV champ on the bottom of the car, not doing a lot. You know, it's like... The, he, that's the thing with Dusty. Like he doesn't seem to pull the trigger when faces need it. It's like I think that's the I, the big difference between like Dusty as a booker and say Vince Pat Patterson as as a as a booking team, is that Vince knew when to put the baby face over and give the big blow off that the fans wanted. Dusty never seems to give it. He never seems to like you always get this sense that guys are fizzling. You know. He did it with uh, Nikita then. He did it with Luger in uh, 88. And then he does it with Sting in 89. Right. Would you agree with that? I I would agree with that uh, in in regards to Vince up to a certain point. I think now you can sort of almost see that actually with modern day WWE kind of the same situation. uh, where, where Where you'll have somebody where they're pushed you know to the moon out of the gate like nikita was when he turned faced and then you back them off a little bit and give them a secondary title and once but, once you've done that it's tough to repair chad nowadays isn't it hunter basically not 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 vince i mean like when i will never know but surely mm. like vince isn't really booking anymore is he i think i think vince is definitely hands-on I mean, he still even now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, wow. I'm, you know, Vince is not concerned with what you know is happening on Superstars or main event. You know, he's not booking that out. But certainly, the main event picture, Vince is still the final say, and he'll rewrite Rawls. I mean, there's Rawls that are rewritten the day of uh, because Vince saw something he didn't like. Right. Is it, I, I'm really like I was. I don't really understand what's happened to to Vince. Like he seems to have lost something in the past few. Like he's seems to have abandoned his traditional philosophies in recent years. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like to me, anyway. But um, or maybe or maybe he. Uh, the, the, the only other explanation I've got for him, modern day Vince, is that he still thinks that the Attitude Era is a moment that he's trying to recapture in some way. So he he looks to that rather than the, the stuff that made him money for the longest time in like the 30 years before that. Yeah. Um, but no, anyway, yeah. So quite a few guys start laying in on uh, Dusty the Booker. Uh, right. But an even bigger reason that people talk about is, and this was a big angle that Ole Anderson has always pushed, but um, quite a few guys got into it, was that, the real reason for the decline of the company was overspending by Crockett Jr., mainly under the influence of Dusty. So there's a few things. There's the the relocation of the office to Dallas that they got off Watts. 
Yeah, that to me seems very bizarre why they did that. I mean, nobody was living in Dallas at that time. Uh, I don't know why you'd want a central operation in the, you know, in the U.S. for day-to-day operations. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like the business workers are going to be flying to every spot show. So that that's a curious decision to me. Yeah, but like the, the the I mean I don't know how much this is true, but they were saying that Dusty like had ideas of uh, Jim Crockett Promotions making movies. Yeah, in Dallas like the productions, and uh, I mean they certainly had the jets, the two yeah. airplanes, two which airplanes, they yeah, four full time pilots on on full time salaries Rare. flying the jets. Yeah, I, um, I, and. All of the, like a pile of guys said this was all Dusty's fault. That basic, basically, the story that they were giving is that Jim Crockett Jr. was so impressed with he was so enamored with Dusty that he was basically like you know I don't want to say like a lap dog to him, but he basically like just kind of uh, indulged Dusty's kind of fantasies. Right. Um, did you get that impression from uh, Crockett himself? Um. I, th- I mean, I think Crockett did a good job in saying why he went with Dusty. Yeah. And and again, I I mean, I really felt like with Crockett talking about Dusty, you got some of the sense of how people talk about Vince Russo, you know, how charismatic yeah. he is and how he kind of is this guy that can come into a room and pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do think Dusty was a good booker uh, for a certain amount of time, but he just hung on too long, and then there was nobody there to kind of take the reins from him when they really needed to. But he needs a boss, doesn't he? Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, needs... I, I think he definitely needs some restraint because, yeah, Dusty is the type of guy where if you give him the keys to the cabinet, which it seems like Crockett did, uh, he he will run wild with it. Like, there'll be no expense spared uh, yeah. based on his vision. Yeah, it's almost like when they bought UWF, right, it would have been better rather than, uh, like, giving Watts a ton of money, just saying, like, look, why didn't you, Bill Watts, keep an eye on Dusty? <laughs> right, if they'd have done that, maybe it would have, like, I don't know, they probably been would have been in fights and stuff, but yeah, <laughs> at least at least you know that Watts is a guy who's got a handle on the bottom line. Yeah, Watts is certainly a guy that has a uh, financial understanding of how to run a company, for sure. Yeah, um, So, but there was like this kind of narrative, like, because in a way, Crockett Jr. came off as being pretty weak in this part, like like a weak character, like somebody who's easily led, somebody who, yeah. like, who kind of like, it's almost like he wanted to be one of the boys and then he just liked having fun right, and stuff. Right. That's what, I mean, Tommy Young referenced that where he was, you know, he was on the plane with the boys and he was kind of living it up and not really taking as hard a look at the financial situation as he needed to. Yeah. So he was just kind of drinking the, the what do you call it? The joy juice or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. He was kind of drunk with power. I, I mean, maybe not necessarily power, but I guess like the wealth and the extravagant lifestyle that he was living at that time, and even though they were burning money. You, you, you do see that as being like a classic kind of like, um, I, I don't, how do you say this? Like son of a son of a son of a successful man type thing. Like where, where like, I don't know, I don't know, like Donald Trump's son. So have you ever seen him? 
Like, yeah. Kind of like somebody who's born into power type thing. Um, but, well, you know, there is also Vince Jr. So, uh, but I guess Vince is also a bit like that, you know. It's just that Vince's, Vince's big gambles in life have all paid off, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I can speak candidly on this. I worked at a uh, a company, a home health care company, uh, for a few years right out of college. And um, on a smaller scale, watching this segment really felt like how what was going on in that company at the time when it went out of business because a lot of the same situations were going on where we just got reckless with spending. We tried to expand. We built offices uh our main office was in Atlanta, but then we got another office in Rome, Georgia, another office in Chattanooga. Uh, so we had expansion that were not financially successful. So there was a lot of parallels in watching this just in my own experience uh, with that company on like a smaller scale. <laughs> no, no, Chad, you're, you're, uh, you're an accountant, right? Were you Correct. screaming at the, were you screaming risk assessment at the screen? <laughs> yes, there was that and then also uh, I'm sure he's on your list but yep. I guess we can go ahead and get on him now. There was right. the uh, the poor accountant who got blamed <laughs> at that. Now I'll just I'll just say a couple of things on that. One um, you know earlier in this documentary they were talking about there was years where they were making 20 million dollars in revenue or uh, I think somebody even thrown out a thirty million dollar figure. If if, even, if you're making twenty million dollars in revenue and you have one accountant, you have big problems. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. If that's the case, if they were making even multi million dollars in revenue, there should be multiple accountants. I mean, at the company I just referenced, it was uh, it it was me and. Uh, one of the owners who was also the administrator, we had control of the financial situation. I basically did the bookkeeping duties and the uh, the long-term assets, fixed assets, and she would handle all the uh, day-to-day operations and stuff, which, and part of that, one of the reasons why this company failed was she was selling from the company through that, but... Uh, Regardless of that, we we did about $2 million in revenues, and we had two people working on it, and uh, I felt overloaded with that. I mean, I've worked $1 million in revenues, and it's it's a job. So $20 million for one person, of course, he's going to be behind. Of course, he's he's right. going to be you know completely I, behind. And the other thing to say, Chad, is that like, Presumably, this was in like the two thousands that you were doing this, right? You right, had like yeah. you had like this a computer. You had QuickBooks and stuff like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, That's if right. he actually has like a hard, I mean, he would have had a hard copy ledger book. Uh, had to have made like all these deposit slips and stuff like that through a hard copy. Yeah, it, it, it's insane. So, especially a company like a wrestling company where you do have a lot of employees. Uh, just the payroll function would have been a pretty big job with all these employees working all these spot shows for an agreed upon amount. Pretty uh, high turnover have, of staff, the yeah, one-off one jobbers and all this sort of stuff. That I thought was ridiculous. Um, one, that he was blamed for that or not doing a good job. And two, I mean, I, I can speak being an accountant in a company, you know, even now, uh, in, unless you're the CFO of a company, 
being an accountant is the type of job where uh, I guess you're only really important when things really go south. You, that's right, where okay. you really feel like your opinion starts to get heard when stuff has to dramatically change. So, I mean, we're not privy to the board meetings or nothing like that that happened in this company. But uh, there was talk that, like, he did. I I can't remember who said it, but somebody said he was spoke up and he was ignored. And I certainly felt relatable to that from personal experience. I mean, I I know uh, our buddy uh, Shu mentioned. I I haven't actually managed to listen to it yet, but... uh, I know Meltzer mentioned that um, this accountant was completely exonerated by this uh, documentary, and it, it was because Jim Crockett spoke up and defended him. Um, I, I can't remember what's the name of this accountant. Can you remember his, his name is? Uh, uh, his last name was Johnson. Johnson, I yeah. Yeah, I know it, David actually says his name, but I can't. Yeah, it's, it's something Johnson. This uh, this accountant, but he is like absolutely buried by a ton of guys on this. Like, pointing like. This one old guy with an, with like an abacus and a candle, you know, yeah. um, that's the kind of image that we get of him here. Completely overwhelmed, hasn't got a clue what's going in and out. Um, and Crockett Crockett Junior. Jim Crockett says um, basically no, he had a handle on it. He knew what the figures were. He kept on telling me, and I ignored him. That's that's basically what he says. So, I mean, it's interesting that from that Meltzer thinks that he's completely exonerated. I guess Meltzer's from that school, which thinks you know, wrestlers all bullshit apart from, apart from Crockett Senior, uh, Crockett Junior. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the accountant was in over his head. I mean, he probably was not doing a good job, but I don't blame him because if he's the only guy working on this multi-million-dollar national company, he definitely needed some help. Yeah. And, and how how do the, these things work, um, Chad? Because, like, my perception is that once the accountant is saying, look, things are going wrong here, isn't it almost too late by that point? Where, like, if it's on the accountant's radar, surely it's already happened, hasn't it, to an to uh, extent? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, most of your accounting work, um, unless you consult with the accountant for financial decisions... Most of your accounting work is on the back end where a transaction or this spending has taken place. So you you owe the debt. And uh, if there's red flags coming up where you're out of balance and you're losing money on your income statement, yeah, uh, yeah once, once you bring that to the attention, if it's as grossly bad as it was here, which they were talking about millions of dollars, they lost money in 1987. Uh, I can't remember if it was 87 or 80. I think it was 87. They said they lost $3 million. Like they made $20 million in yeah. revenue, but they spent 23 Yeah, uh, so, Something like that, you have a significant problems on your hands. Now, I mean, the accountant, it's it's not clear and it's too financially technical for a documentary like this it, i mean it's not clear whether the, the accountant figured that out at year end which is not good if he did i mean you should know generally at least month end if you do a month in close out uh so that wasn't clear on this uh, documentary, but yeah, once once he says like we've we're three million dollars in the hole, 
you have to do something very dramatic, uh, usually involve cutting spending at a <laughs> radical rate to recover any of that. Chad, can you really blame the accountant? Like, common sense says, right, if you fly a bloody private jet from Charlotte to Richmond when you could drive it, um, and they were saying they were make, they'd make plane journeys even for, like, stuff within the te- within the traditional territory, right? They'd fly yeah. from, like... Um, you know, Greensboro to like, you know, a local, a, you know, a local arena that they. Well, even Charlotte to Atlanta. I mean, that Charlotte to Atlanta, should, right? Yeah, I mean, that should be a drive. That should not be a private plane. So, I mean, at this point, Vince, Vince now, with all his success with Hogan, was still using commercial jets. Yeah. Um. So, and would the guys pay that for those themselves? I get uh, the the wrestlers themselves, or, or was I mean, I mean, up? some guys would have travel paid like your Hogan's, but uh, but yeah, most of the wrestlers that was their out of pocket expenses. Or uh, well, no, I don't know if it's jets. I'm not sure if you flew if that was an out of pocket expense. That's always kind of a gray area. Yeah. Well, I know, but, uh, I know, old uh, technical technical Ted got his uh, first class ticket. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I know certainly car rentals was out of your own pocket. Right, so if yeah. Crockett was paying for their plane rides for like a Charlotte to Atlanta drive, that should have been, guys, y'all have to rent a car and it's out of yeah. your own expense. I right, mean, like, that's just the way of the road. If you're a wrestler at this time, you would have been laughing. Like, cause, oh, like, yeah, if you're a wrestler, I mean, some of these guys like, I mean, somebody like a Paul Jones, I mean, imagine he... Uh, and he was still kind of hanging around a little bit here. He's somebody that was wrestled in the 60s and 70s. You know he drove up and down yeah. all the back roads and everything. Now, all of a sudden, if he's flying uh, just to manage his table or yeah. run around with Jimmy Valiant, like yeah. it's got to know, be you, the you best. You can imagine him there with some a glass of champagne. Oh, this is nice. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to turn it down, are you? I mean, no. Oh, well, yeah, I, I certainly blame... <laughs> In any company, I never blame the employee for taking a perk that's presented, even if it's not, even if you de- technically know it's probably not the financial f- most yeah. feasible one. And, you know, they didn't get into it, but you know, Flair himself was bankrolling a shitload of this stuff as well. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> um, so, so we can't blame the accountant then. We did that, like, but I do think that he is a kind of symptom or a symbol of a mistake that Crockett did make, which he does mention himself, which is that he didn't expand his business operations. Operations, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess the... Uh, is there any more that you have besides, I guess, Crockett himself? There's, um, a, couple of, there's the, a couple of old secretaries in that accountant. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, to me... After the accountant got right through the coals, we had Dusty, and then uh, and then they finally sort of ended it where a couple blamed Crockett himself. Yeah. And uh, and that and I think after watching, because one thing with this documentary, we had no mention of any fraud. Uh, nobody even hinted that any fraud or anything like that happened. No. Uh, so so based on the evidence that. I've read about that was presented in this documentary. Uh, I lay the most blame with Crockett himself only because he knew one. He knew how to run a successful wrestling business. He had a template. He knew he he was using a lot more expenses 
than previous years. Like, I mean, he was around in 1981, mm. so he knew what the business operations looked like then. And so if he's around in 1987, they're flying everywhere across the country, he's going all over the place, and he still has the same uh, business operations team staff. Yeah then he had to, or he should have known that uh, that wasn't very feasible. Yeah, like, and we didn't get much of a sense about what the office was like apart from him. Like, is, like, Johnny Weaver sitting there in the back? Like, what, what use is he going to be, you know, when you're running, like, a t- multi-million dollar operation? Yeah, and it, and, I mean, they showed, like, the little postcard. I mean, it felt like it was, like, a little, I guess... From what I heard, I, I kind of pictured like a little warehouse office, you know, with about yeah. 10 employees uh, was running Crockett Promotions. So Well, they said that George Scott still had his own office, like across yeah, the street or something. Right. So it had to be something that Scott could afford on his own, like kind of retired wrestler's wages or whatever it was. Um, the, uh, the the only other thing I'll, uh, I'll mention on this um, was that... Um, I, it didn't. I didn't really get much of a sense of what, about what business uh, David had beyond being a commentator. They didn't really get into like what his role was in the company, Did or you, the full ownership stake. That's right. Yeah, we never got whether it was like what was the percentage breakdown between the four children. Uh, you never got it. They never mentioned that. That's something that I'd be interested in. Yeah, I it, was, mean, it was kind of hazy because, yeah. you know, when David was talking, he kind of took credit for quite big things. Like he, it was almost like he gave the million dollars to Vince, for example, or it was like it was almost like he sold the company type thing when he was talking about it. So it, it that was like I couldn't make tell if David was weirdly kind of putting himself over in some way, or whether like he was a major player. It was hard to tell. Um, yeah, and but but David also blames Dusty. Oh, massive! Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he says that Dusty knew what he was doing, so that kind of to me gave kind of a sense of Dusty was spending all, I guess, like my brother's money, you know, and my brother wouldn't stop. You know, it kind of felt like yeah. that. Like I felt powerless to do anything because. Uh, he just kept believing Dusty. But, but like I remember reading like through the Meltzer stuff that um, David was like consistently a guy who was a guy like putting stuff on the brakes during the deal. Because you remember mm-hmm. like that it's not like he they started to, talking to Turner <clears throat> in November '88. They started talking to Turner like seemingly like months and months beforehand. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. The Meltzer report start, and I know David is a constant thorn in the side of that deal. So. Um, I don't know, but I, I don't know if, whether that's just because he's got the ear of Jim Crockett or because he actually has a vital stake in some way. It was hard I would to tell. guess he at least had a, a, a minority stake in the company. I'd be very surprised if he didn't. Yeah, the the the, uh, <laughs> the only other uh, stuff uh, I'd like to mention, uh, Chad, on, on the documentary itself is um, there's a couple of cool little things here that we haven't mentioned, like... Um, a one bit George South, who was like a a jobber, I guess. Um, we see his pay slip. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he kept his. Uh, yeah, that was something that also happened at the company I worked for, where we uh, 
that that's pretty much the most like tip off you can give to uh your employees that things are really not going bad when you uh when you either skip when when payroll doesn't hit because that's that's when you're in very very deep water yeah i mean shit what what even happens when uh when you're an employee and your boss and your employers can't pay you i can't even imagine what yeah, I mean, it's really a powerless situation. I know in that company, we uh, the the kind of the bleak, I guess the black Saturday weekend uh, when that happened, uh, we knew we were not going to make payroll, and our owner ended up having to uh, relinquish thousands of dollars from his personal savings account just to make payroll. Okay. And then immediately we knew we were in severe trouble. So that Monday he essentially had to lay off uh, more than half the staff just to keep going uh, for the, we ended up closing about four months after that. But that was definitely where uh, we all saw the writing on the wall. And and here they, they talk about like the Crockett's running around town, maxing out their credit cards. Just Yeah. To- I mean, that, this is the, that's the, similar situation so yeah like i said a lot of the very last 30 minutes uh hit really close to home for me because that was a situation where i was i mean this happened in 2011 i was fortunate enough to where i was only unemployed uh for two months and this was when unemployment was around 10 percent uh in atlanta so i was fortunate that i was only unemployed for about two months but it it really it's 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 tough if you own a company uh to see the ramifications that it'll cause other people i mean just yeah. in our company there was about 30 people affected by this so now, do, do you like what's your take on dust like do you like clearly the ultimate responsibility lies with crockett right do you yeah. think dusty takes any of blame here do, do you think i think Dusty takes a good bit of blame uh because he is it's kind of tough to say like in company terms what he'd be the equivalent of but uh he certainly seemed like sort of like a coo type yeah uh, person within the company where he was one of the main guys running the company uh certainly spent most of the high expenditures within the company so I do think Dusty, for sure, given that responsibility, should have been a lot more uh, financially responsible in what he spent and uh, should have been more aware of what the overall financial landscape of the company was. Yeah, and I, I guess it's like it's pretty sickening in a way. Like Dusty's uh, comeuppance for all of this is that he gets a, a run in the WWF as a polka dot man, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Dusty... Dusty basically skips town goes to the wwf i mean he was not a main eventer but i'm sure he made decent money and yeah. i mean it may have been humiliating a little bit but i mean right after that he goes right back to wcw as booker in right. early 1991 so it's not there's not been i mean i like dusty uh, i think we're pretty fair and have been on dusty yeah. uh, for a lot of these shows but I certainly think he can uh, hold some of the responsibility in this regard along with Crockett. Them were really the two. Uh, I mean, to me, Jim Jr. and Dusty are the two uh, main components there, and I'd probably break it down to about a 
75% to 80%, I'd blame Jim Jr. And the other, I'd blame uh, Dusty. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I think I'd go along with that. Um, Maybe 3% the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'd, yeah, I'd go along with that. I'd, I, I also think that um, if you look at some of the reasons, like the individual decisions that Dusty and Crockett made... I think that the pace of the expansion was too fast. Yes. Um, so we, we can debate till the Takaris come home whether you should expand. I think ultimately the answer is yes, you have to. Otherwise yeah. Vince is going to eat yeah. you. Yeah, but, um, that, that, that is one thing they mentioned. I mean, some... Uh, was it George? Yeah, it was George Sal. He said, like, if they hadn't expanded, they'd still be in business today, running the Carolinas in Atlanta. I mean, that I vehemently disagree with that. That is way too short term. I think Vince would have certainly purged the top talent yeah. from them if they hadn't and never expanded. So Flair would have been gone. Even to, I mean, he had the expenses to purge the top talent. Then you end up with people like George South on top of your cars, <laughs> and that's yeah, yeah, not yeah. going to be something that would sustain what I mean. Twenty five years it's been since they went out. Yeah, I mean, I, I get like I got the sense with the documentary that they were kind of hinting at. I got like the impression that maybe Elliot himself, they were kind of hinting at that maybe like the glory days was like back in the mid Atlantic time, right? A little bit, so that like if it had only stayed that they could have they could have kept on going. But I I agree with you, Chad, that it's only a matter of time before, like, well, I mean, even even then. You know, Vince got the uh, Brain Busters, right? Yeah. He yeah, got... I mean, um, he, Dusty went there in 89. Flair went there in 91. It's, it's, Luger went there in 93. 92 even. So it's like... It's not like... Um, there's it's, it's not like it didn't happen anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He could have plucked for sure. Even if they had never started expanding in 85, 86... Uh, he would have for sure plucked the uh, top talent whenever their contract was up. There's not a doubt in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree that they had to um, expand and make a kind of distinct identity for themselves. I mean, we can talk a hell of a lot more when Bischoff comes into the picture, Chad, because I've got a lot of, like, I get a bit upset of uh, Bischoff's uh, 93, 94, 95 type of period. Um, about what he does to the company during that time, um, but I do think that they to to survive they had to go beyond the Carolinas basically, mm-hmm. um, and, and if it if it just stayed Georgia and the Carolinas say they need more, but they could I tell you what they could have done though Chad right is does expansion mean that you have to go from like the tip of New York to the tip of Portland to the south you know, San Francisco to Florida. Couldn't they have, could, I, I can't remember who says it on the documentary. Was it Cornette? Who says like, if they just stuck to Florida, Georgia, the old Mid-South Territory and uh, the Carolinas and had, and maybe Texas and had that as their base. Do they need to go to New York and California and all the other markets? Um, I, I mean, I just think the way that the business was changing from a live event 
type business, a house show business essentially, to television rating revenue and pay per view business. Yeah, I, I don't think you can even be centralized to a region. I, right, I think okay. I think you have to be national. Okay, I mean because even ECW, you look at oh, that's uh, what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, ECW has that, but even in like '97. Uh, when they went to pay-per-view, they'd already been to Georgia, for instance. I mean, they hadn't been west yet, but they'd been to Georgia. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because you can look at the companies and see, like, uh, I mean, Ring of Honor sort of hanging by a string now. I guess they're the closest did, equivalent Chad, to that. Did the TNA run the same venue every week? Well, they did for a period, right? They run from the yeah, same yeah. place. TNA ran the Impact Zone in Orlando, Florida. That was, and then they do very sporadic kind of house shows, mostly around that area. Even now. Uh, even now that now they've expanded, so now right. they are uh, they're doing their tapes and they do one live show, one tape show for Impact, and they do that all over the country and they are pretty much touring all over the country. But that's just in the past uh, couple of years. So when TNA were coming from that Impact arena every week, were they considered a national company because they had TV? Yeah, yeah. See, They'd be considered a national company. Because uh... that goes back to the Greensboro point, doesn't it? Because yeah. if, like, let's say you expand the TV, but you don't expand the live dates, you don't expand the arena tour around the country, could they have carried on going like that? I mean, there's a, like, or, like let's have a fantasy scenario. What if Memphis gets national TV, say? That that would be, I think, your only example. But, I mean, Memphis is an interesting city as a whole based on how big it is and how much they were able to sustain. Yeah. But I think eventually, if you're there for that long, people will get burned out. I mean, I just can't see... I think your cap at doing that is maybe uh, five to seven years Probably, okay. because I mean, Memphis in the early '90s, you can look at those Mid South Coliseum crowds, and I mean, yeah, they're drawing like 1,200, 1,500. That's not awful, you know. I mean, mm. that's a good house for Ring of Honor. But when you're in the Mid South Coliseum, which is thousands of seats, and Jerry Lawler brawls up to the crowd, and there's nobody there where he's brawling, uh, it does look bad. And right. I, I, I just think eventually wrestling is such a niche product that once it gets hot, it's great, but casual fans were dropped off, and then you're left with the hardcores, and then for a variety of reasons, the hardcores may drop off too and not be replenished. But could you ever envisage a model where it's like, okay, think of the old um, Crockett, uh, the WTBS studio, right, with 500 mm -hmm. fans around there. Right. Run that every week, right? You're, you're going to get 500 fans no matter what. So the size of the crowd doesn't matter in that studio. But yet you're going out nationally. C can that be sustained as a business model or is there just not enough in the TV revenue and the pay-per-view? to? Yeah, to I don't think there's not enough. There's not enough, it, right. Yeah, or, and I mean, it's so tough now because you're, again, your talent, like, I mean, you have one 
huge. I mean, if you say WWE goes out of business tomorrow, that changes the landscape. Right. But right now you have one company that's so, so huge compared to everybody else that they really can pluck and bully and dominate what they want, who they want, you mm. know. Uh, I mean, because there, there is indies, like uh, there's an indie in Kansas City that sort of does that. Like they have weekly internet TV uh, that's ran like a TV show from the same arena. I think it's Metro Pro. I'm not sure. I know Dylan watches them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they run it. They run it like a studio TV show from the territory era, from Kansas City, from the same arena. Mm. Uh, and, and I mean, they their core fan base is pretty uh, pas- impassioned right now, and uh, they're hot for the matches. But you know, nobody outside of them knows them or somebody crazy like Dylan that's watched thousands of matches. You know, the only reason yeah. I know about them is because of him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a difficult one. I mean, my my take with Crockett, uh, going back to them, is mm-hmm. that you can just slow everything down by a yeah, rate of yeah. about a th- maybe a th- maybe two thirds slower than what they did. So, yeah, I think that's certainly true. That like '86, they were very successful. They expanded a good bit. I mean, we saw that Philadelphia show for the Great American Bash. Yeah. So they were expanding. If they just maybe in 87 expanded a little more into maybe Texas or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, I think they could have slowed it down to where if they'd have kept going at that pace, then in 89, when you really, in my opinion, have the product to match what could expand and sort of set the business of Blaze, yeah. then you could have full bore went into we're national. Uh, oh, if yeah. you'd had like the Flair Funk feud or Flair Steamboat as a catalyst to your expanding fully national, that to me, like that Flair Funk Great American Bash match, that to me is a match you could have ran in Chicago. Right, yeah. And, and seen what happened. I think that would have been the time to make that gamble. Yeah, but they'd already, they'd basically, even though that show draws, draws all right um, yeah. by, that, by the standards of 89. Um, by that point, they kind of already made all the mistakes, haven't they? Yeah, so, they're yeah. done. Yeah, they're yeah. done. But what they did by that show, they were done. So yeah. I think if they'd have slowed it down, but we're like it, in just in the shows that we've looked at, Chad, we hmm. we didn't. They didn't just roll into Chicago. We've seen them roll into like New York, uh, right? You know, New Orleans. They tried to run right with, with a, a, a junkyard dog uh, appearance. You know that show. Mm-hmm. Classics. You know, yep. They went into uh, Fort Worth. They went into like, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, throw enough shit at the wall and see what sticks type type uh, approach. And I don't really understand. I've never understood the strategy of how they book the towns, and I'll never and I'll never understand why they why it's so scattershot. You know, why is it L.A. one night and you know Florida the next night, and yeah. then like I've never got that. Why don't you do like you know, why, why don't you do like, you know, 10 dates in L.A. and then 10 dates in Florida? I don't understand why they're flying back and forth all the time. Just because right. they had the jet? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, with both their expansion and even the AWA expansion, which is another dire situation, it just feels like they felt like they had to equal what Vince was doing. 
and they just didn't have the financial resources that Vince did to take a bath on some of these dates, you know, and it yeah. eventually caught up to them. You see, that, that's the other thing. If you look at Vince's expansion, and there's the most detailed, longest thread you'll ever see on the board by um, by Chris Z. By Chris Z. It's insane. Yeah. I, I spent a good chunk of it. I printed it out, Chad. Yeah. I used, like, all of the university's paper. <laughs> because <laughs> um, it was like seriously like 300 pages or something right and um I, I you know i sat through and looked like if you look at vince's expansion it's not like he's setting the world alight uh, when he first goes into a territory right. you're gonna you're gonna get shows where it's you know two thousand people going up mm-hmm. against you know fifteen thousand that the awa did the previous day but like over a four-year period maybe by that by you know, in four years' time, maybe he's maybe Vince is now hitting the fifteen thousand, you know, or at least ten thousand, which is good enough for for him in that area. But the difference is, is that Vince could always bank on New York, right? He could always yeah. bank on a strong home territory. And I just wonder if there's not enough people in in uh, in Greensboro, in in the Carolinas, or even in Georgia, Chad. To to sustain an expansion like the expansion that Vince had, yeah, Georgia I'd say is your closest bet more than the Carolinas, but uh, I mean it's certainly not like a New York. I mean New York's so heavily populated, so. right? But like even I mean, like it's interesting. Uh, Pencil, like uh, what's that state up there? Uh, where's, where's well, you get I mean with Vince you had he had Boston, yeah, he had Philadelphia, the Spectrum. And he had Madison Square Garden. I mean, I think those three, and then you had the minor, like the Capitol Center. And uh, if, you, if you look at the population of that area, Chad, that's like a, probably like as big as the UK or something. That's like yeah. basically having the UK as your territory. You know, that's not a small market. That's like the size of a country. Right. Um, and there's just not that many people in that part of the in the South, right? It's just, it's much more sparsely populated. And over a bigger area, so yeah. yeah, it's difficult. Oh well, that was interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, we uh, thought we'd go an hour on this, Chad. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, uh, but I mean, I think we should know by now that if me and you are talking about anything with wrestling, we're going to have a lot of analysis and a lot of talking points. But uh, overall, I mean, I think the documentary was good. It certainly, uh, as if you can't tell by us talking two hours, it brings up a lot of good points. Yeah. I think especially with the closing of Crockett and the different theories that you get there. So, again, I'd recommend it if you're interested at all in the uh, era. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say is this, I think there's probably about seven hours of extras that I haven't seen yeah. yet or that yeah. you haven't seen yet, Chad. And I, I bet you, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if it's positive, but... They they've put the everything that they recorded with Crockett Jr. is on disc three, so uh, my bet is that his interview alone would be as interesting as the whole documentary. That's my like w- without having seen it, because um, I'd say he is probably the highlight of the documentary itself. Um, what he has to say, would you agree with that? Yeah, just because he's so rare, and I thought he was very candid. Yeah. So, but it's de- it's definitely like anybody who's a, even got the slightest interest in this or in even wrestling history has to pick it up. I would say, uh, and it's not expensive from high spots. 
No, I mean, and you do get a, 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 I mean, the packaging is very professionally looking. I mean, it's not, uh, I'm not going to be embarrassed to put it in my cabinet. I'll say that, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, fantastic. And uh, from here, Chad, we've got uh, the AWA show that may or may not appear at some (laughs) point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We've been trying to put it together for the last month. Uh, what, what happened? Basically, we recorded a big long show. It probably was about four hours. Looking back on it, Chad. Yeah, um, it should be our longest show. Um, and um, we basically the middle two hours or so of uh, it, it, you and I talking with uh, Dylan and uh, our buddy Brian Samek um, isn't there. Yeah, <laughs> didn't didn't come out. So um, there was that. And our next show is going to be Wrestle War. 19. Yeah, Wrestle War 1990 with Charles. With so, Charles, uh, yeah. Next time you hear us, it should be one of those two shows. Yeah. All right. Till next time. All right. See you, Parf. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>